the complexity of race in America has always been difficult because we've got to do something because one, we know when you've had that kind of inhumane treatment for so long, for 200 and some years, there is no way that it's going to be rebuilt in this way that there's going to be goodness in people. Welcome to the Winsome Conviction Podcast. I'm Tim Mielhoff, a professor of communication at Biola University. And my name is Rick Langer. I'm also a professor at Biola University and also the director of the Office of Faith and Learning. And together, we're the co-directors, Tim and I, of the Winsome Conviction Project. The Winsome Conviction Project has just launched, and we're already working with Christian high schools. We're working with different churches. Our goal is to return civility, compassion, kindness perspective-taking back into our public disagreements. And boy, Rick, there's been a lot of public disagreements. You'll be glad to know it's a booming economic enterprise <laughs> and we'll soon be having our own IPO. So this is really, uh, the, good, the good news is we have a market. Uh, Rick and I have a brand new book that's coming out called Winsome Conviction, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church. And we literally had to rewrite the introduction three times because new things happened that people were talking about, dividing us as a nation, a church, neighborhoods. So uh, this book is current, and we want to talk to people who we think can add to the conversation. And so it's really fun when those people just happen to be really good friends. And so today we have a, a great friend, uh, James White. I've known James for over 30 years. So uh, let me tell you a little bit about James White. James and his wife, Cynthia, served with Crew for 19 years, including eight years at Howard University. James currently serves as the Executive Vice President of Organizational Relations for the Triangle Area YMCA in North Carolina, and as the Senior Pastor of Christ Our King Community Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. He's also been appointed by the Governor of North Carolina to head up the Martin Luther King Jr. Commission on Race. James is a teacher. He teaches a class on social justice and race at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he also serves as a consultant for several organizations concerning diversity and community in the marketplace. He's been married to Cynthia for over 33 years, and they have three children. James, welcome to our podcast. It is good to be here. Uh, let me tell you two fun facts, listeners, about James White. Uh, one, I was a wrestler in high school. I'm about 5'10", barely. And in basketball, I have blocked two shots, Rick, in my entire life oh my as a basketball goodness. player. Both of them, Rick, against James White. And, and why would you bring that up Because now, I've only brought it up for over 30 years. So, James, hey, you know this is true. You could know. I, yes. Could I suggest, Tim, that you're living in the past? <laughs> well, let me just say this. I still will travel and speak on college campuses, and when they find out that I know Dr. Muehlhoff, uh, to my surprise, they will bring up the story. <laughs> so that is unfortunate, and I'm only five foot seven inches tall, so that's very unfortunate. Wow. Wow. My work is done. And no, you've, you've, you've really put all this yes. in perspective, Kim. Get, That's great. You're modeling the, the winsome conviction thing. You're yes. getting great at letting things go. That's, that's I, wonderful. I like to think of it as winsome trash talk. Um, <laughs> another fun fact is, James, you have a black belt. If I remember this correctly, when I first met you, you have a black belt in what? 
in uh, Shitoru, which is a Japanese form of karate, which is an Okinawan form of of Shotokan. Yeah, I'm very familiar with uh, Shotokan. And and uh, James, I just got my black belt in Shaolin Kung Fu after seven years. Literally, just got it a couple uh, months ago. Wow! And I, congratulations! Thank you. Congratulations! And I, and I happen to be wearing a black belt today, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm feeling pretty good. Well, James, this has been a crazy year yes. and um, with conversations and issues that have been challenging, I think it's been made worse by the internet and we are seeing our nation wrestle at a level that is not unparalleled, but is shocking to see the disagreements that we have and all three of us kind of grew up during the racial unrest of the 1960s. I remember uh, in 1965, the Detroit riots, and my dad putting us in the family car and watching the National Guard have outposts in the streets of Detroit. Um, yet, how did you experience this, James? I, I, you know, me and Rick being white of a dominant culture, it, it occurs to me that we've, we have different experiences, though roughly the same age range, what was it like for you to grow up in the turbulent 60s? What moments have stuck out to you? You know, I, one of the things as we have this conversation, what you're talking about is so true of of yet our, our similarities and yet our differences. So yes, the three of us are probably around the same age. And yet, so I'm born in 1961. And when you begin to think about that for a moment, and this is where I've started reflecting back on my own personal narrative as we talk about and have this conversation about race. But here I am born in 1961. Now, I think sometimes we lose the reality that when we say history, yesterday was history. So history is still very real and present. So when I think about that, and now when I go back and reflect on my life, there's some things that's becoming clear. So if I'm born in 1961, then that means my mother and father brought into the world a child in rural North Carolina that was in the midst of a Jim Crow reality. I was born before Dr. King's March on Washington speech was given. That also means that I was born without the freedoms as a human being to even be promised to participate uh, effectively in society. I was born before there was an assured right to vote. Uh, that means that if I'm born in 1961, Civil Rights Act is not signed to 1965. Mm. It also makes sense because I was one of the first, uh, there were 10 of us. My mother was one of the first people to integrate this elementary school, the school system. She was the first black person chosen to teach at the all white elementary school. This is 1967. And so my first grade year, I went with my mother. There were probably about less than 10 of us who also uh, was there. So I remember my first day of school. Most people probably don't remember that, but I remember because of the trauma of riding the bus and every child except for an Asian kid would not let me sit down. And they used the N-word. Mm. I also remember in that year when I came back home, because we had mentors in the first grade, I, again, had a crush on Sherry, who was a sixth grader that was blonde-haired, 
uh, white. And when I told my mom this riding home with her in the car, she panicked. And I can and I remember going, what in the world? Well, you got to remember it. So if this is 1967, well, Loving versus Virginia, the Supreme Court didn't even make it legal for interracial marriage to take place until 1967. Guess who's coming to Jenner comes out at the same time. Mm. Parents, and this is also important in how I experienced the 60s, my parents were born in 1923. So you're talking about parents who are only 60-some years past the Emancipation Proclamation. So when I look back at my time in the 60s, I have experienced even as parents are taking the journey, I experienced the reality of Jim Crow and a community that was just beginning to legally deconstruct and take the signs down that existed only a few years before my birth that existed all throughout the community that I was in. That is an incredible uh, reminder, uh, James. One of the things that hits me as you describe that is basically you have a one person handoff between you, you between your family, your, your mom and dad, and the Emancipation Declaration in, in 1860. Right. You just realize, oh my gosh. And when people talk about, haven't we been dealing with the race issue for long enough? How long do we keep going back? It's actually a really good reminder to say, well, look, I'm actually talking about my grandpa here <laughs> or my right. great grandpa. It, it isn't that long. And for you personally to go, yeah, this is the world I grew up in. My mom was the person who helped, you know, first first uh, black teacher at an integrated school. And you're saying like, oh, different world, different world. And, and, and you know, to your point, so and you think about it, not just my grandfather, so if my parents are only born 60 years after Emancipation Proclamation, and if my dad was born in 1923, and Tim and I talked about how our fathers just had this exterior and some of the dynamics of our fathers, I've had to go back and really do some work to make peace because my father also fought in World War II. Mm. So he fought in Germany. Now, here's what's interesting. The whole trajectory of our lives were different because of race. Because when he came back home from World War II, he had to put his uniform away. I never saw my dad's uniform, even though I remember my dad saying to me that I was treated better in Italy by whites in Italy and other places than I am coming back into this country. So you got to imagine, mm. you, you got a father that defends a country that wouldn't defend him. Mm. So here you have a father who grows up with that, and he didn't benefit from one of the wealth generators of rebuilding wealth in the 1940s, which was the GI Bill. And so he didn't benefit from that because there were no universities that were going to pay his way to school because of Jim Crow. He couldn't go to NC State, couldn't go to Carolina. He only had a couple of historically black colleges that even were in existence that generated that. And many of them, black GIs, those spots were filled. But my dad spent the rest of his life working in a shipyard and didn't benefit from the wealth generation of having protected and served the country. And yet, what's amazing to me is he still said the Pledge of Allegiance. Mm. He still was patriotic. And I look at that and go, oh, my goodness. That, so that alone has begun to help even the complexity of what my dad had to navigate through in that time. 
and coming back, and we lived on the land that he had four acres from because his uncle, who he lived with, was a sharecropper. So he used to show me all the land that he worked on as a little boy in sharecropping, but only ended up owning a very small part of that land because of the injustices of sharecropping. So, so this isn't past history. This is current realities for me right now. Well, James, we have, we have a concept in communication theory called standpoint theory, which means where you stand in culture, you can have a very different perspective. And so just as a parent, going back to your story of you going to elementary school, our elementary school is right across from our house. I could throw a baseball and hit our elementary school. And when we walked our three boys to that elementary school, I never once had a concern that my kids would be neglected because of the color of their skin. I, I, it breaks my heart to think of a, a, a boy your age being treated that way. Um, what effect does that have on the psyche of a young child? Like, like what, what is that creating you self-esteem-wise, self-image-wise? Well, I, I think here's what's interesting is what's interesting is as I reflect back, it wasn't just the violence that was difficult. It was even the intellectual, psychological journey of what was being taught. Mm. So think about it, for example. I was taught in books where there were no characters who looked like me. That alone, when you never see yourself in literature, and the only place where I would see myself in literature would be slaves. That was it. I was never taught about George Washington Carver, never talked about the genius of even leadership, falsely taught about Africa. And then you think about it, it's even enforced in entertainment in every place because I grew up watching Tarzan on Saturday mornings. That was one of the most damaging things when I look back because it even gave me the myths and misunderstanding of Africa because how in the world could a white guy whose parents crashed a plane end up becoming king of the jungle. He's, not, he's a baby that's not even from that. Talk about colonization on steroids. Mm. And, so, and so that's the image you grow up with. I also grew up with this, and my dad loved Westerns. Here's how ironic it is. Well, after I began to learn how indigenous people were treated, why would I want to be a cowboy? You know, and, and also what was always so unique, even before the Bruce Lee movies of one man taking out all these other different, uh, taking out the Japanese, which is also another reversal of race, how could only John Wayne and a few other guys end up defeating whole tribes of indigenous people? So you grow up with these things, and then in the educational system, you're not taught the whole story. So when you talked about Lincoln as the great emancipator, even today, we misunderstand Lincoln, and we don't give the full story. I mean, Lincoln, and it would take being an adult before you learn from Lincoln, who was pretty silent, but you see in his speeches, seven years before the Emancipation Proclamation, when he's running against, uh, against Stephen Douglas, Lincoln was very clear of his racist beliefs. Lincoln, if could have won the Civil War without freeing the slaves, he would have. And you even see that when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, the border states and those in the close to the North, he didn't make sure that slaves were free there. And then it wasn't until 
again, after the Emancipation Proclamation and the Civil War and the death of the Civil War, that Lincoln changes his position in his last speech. But it was seven years earlier, he had the same political racist beliefs as everyone else had, but he changed his position. Then only a few days later, he's assassinated because of the dangerous position. So no one would teach that it would take violence. It would take a bloody civil war to even change the president's understanding, again, of race. So I say all of that to say, even what I was taught in books and history also had this thing that was just as damaging. And then my father and even people in the community would say things to me that were really racist. They would say, okay, James, uh, and they called me, and my middle name is Alfred. Okay, James Alfred, you got to be 10 times better than white kids. Mm. I grew up with a perspective going into the first, second, third grade elementary school that I had to be 10 times better. That is inhuman. Why in the world would you, t- but that was the narrative that I digested and even to the point to where I, it, you internalize that so that you can't even be a human. You have to be superhuman to navigate with white people. James, do you, talking about what we didn't get in school, do you remember that project uh, we did, the communication center, a long time ago? Cynthia, your wife, was part of it. Melvita was part of it, where we tried to hear the perspectives of uh, African Americans on staff with Crew, Campus Crusade for Christ. And remember, I wrote it, my first publication was in a Mars Hill Review called All Beginnings Are Difficult. And I wrote about the fact that here I am, a college graduate, and Melvita uses this powerful image of the Middle Passage. And I honestly, James, did not know what the Middle Passage was. Yes. I, I grabbed somebody afterwards and said, hey, like, wh- I, I, what's the Middle Passage? And the first white friend I went to said, yeah, I, I, I was a little bit confused by that. I, I didn't know what she was talking about. So, James, think about that. Right, the African Holocaust. Yes. Can you imagine the psyche of a Jewish student if they mentioned the Holocaust, don't even need a qualifier, right? The Holocaust. And I say to that Jewish student, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, what, the what? And that Jewish student would look at me and say, you've got to be kidding, the Jewish Holocaust. And yet the African Holocaust, and Steven Spielberg is so powerful about this when he did you know, Amistad and said it, yeah. people didn't want to see it as much as they wanted to see Schindler's List. So right. James, that has haunted me, and that was what, 30 some years ago, um, that, that, that the African Holocaust is less than the Holocaust, which is the Jewish Holocaust. Right, right. So, so it's, it's interesting, and Tim, this is what I've always appreciated about you, and even some of the work you did here for your PhD, it, 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 it all comes back to how do you listen? This is the genius of what I think the two of you are doing. How do you listen to someone else's story? But now what do you do when neurologically your brain is not even adapt to hearing someone else's story? What, what do you do when you don't even have memory and images? Because so much of how the brain works, and I'm being overly simplistic here, is you have images and pictures that you draw from. You have things that you remember that you draw from. Well, what do you do when you have no memory? 
What do you do when you have no memory, no images of ever being close with someone from another race, of ever engaging a black person in authority over you? What do you do when you have no memory of even what you've studied in books? What do you do when your TV programs, the first black family you ever saw was a black family in the ghetto uh, called Good Times, or the black the black man was a garbage, was a junk dealer, Fred Sanford. What do you do when you don't have those images there? So for some people today, when we talk about this issue, sometimes I wonder, does your brain even have an imagination to see things any differently? So let me let me dive in on that for a sec, James, and, and move it from being kind of a rhetorical question to literally describing my own situation. So you talked a little bit about where you were in the 60s, and Tim, likewise for him. Tim was in Detroit, where you had a large black population. He was not black, but that was part of the interface. I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, and Boulder's pretty much lily white. I can think of maybe one or two black students who were in my high school of over 2,000 students. Um, we did have, uh, you know, a Hispanic population that was a meaningful number of people, but it was a pretty white environment. And one of my memories is talking to a friend of mine, a guy in my church, when I was probably close to 30 years old, and he had grown up in Georgia. And we were talking about our experience in the 60s. And, and Boulder's only very loosely attached to reality. It doesn't like to be reminded there's a real world or anything else out there. And so Boulder's kind of a funky town. It's Berkeley with mountains. Um, but we had a very um, kind of a sense that racism wasn't a problem for us, but literally with kind of no imagination of what it would actually be like, because we just didn't, I didn't grow up with those experiences. I'm talking to my friend from Georgia, and he's describing for me segregated swimming pools in his growing, because we grew up, we're same age. And I'm like, I didn't even know, I, I, I just had to stop the conversation and say, wait a minute, what are you really talking? Were they like two different pools or different times? And I just realized I had literally no mental space for that. And I was aware of Jim Crow. I could have told you many things, but there was no space in my head to accommodate what he was describing for me. So this really does become an issue. I don't know that there's a biological thing that keeps me from, uh, you know, understanding but boy, there was a, a lack of a set of experiences that made it really, really hard for me to kind of get it if I was talking to a person. And as I be, you know, I, I grew up, I was traveled around a lot. I had a lot of cross-cultural experiences with all kinds of different races all over the world, actually, over the course of my college and post-college time. But I realized on the ground floor, I had very, very little of that kind of diversity. You know, I think it's it's interesting because I go back, I take a, a historical approach to this. Even when you go back and you study, so why was slavery so brutal and so difficult? And why in the world did after slavery, we put in 90 years of Jim Crow? And, and one of my heroes, I mean, I love Wilberforce, but when you think about the British, they had a different reality when they were going to abolish slavery. Sure, there was an economic uh, reality, but when you abolish slavery here in America, and especially in the South, where you have communities where we live right next to each other, if you if you there's free slaves in Mississippi, where you have more slaves than you do white plantation owners or white people, period, 
the complexity of race in America has always been difficult because we've got to do something because one, we know when you've had that kind of inhumane treatment for so long, for 200 and some years, there is no way that it's going to be rebuilt in this way that there's going to be goodness in people because we've intentionally done some things and we're neighbors now. So in order to even be able to exist, that's why America ended up creating frameworks that really built all of America. It's so fascinating. But when you begin to look at westward expansion and whatever that took place, there are communities and everything that were built. And it's always been interesting. My friends from South Dakota, North Dakota, would say, we don't have a race problem. <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> we were not able to migrate to those places. Any place where we were able to go to and migrate to, there was always a challenge. So cities like cities like Detroit and northern cities who would say, we are north, don't have a race problem. Are you kidding me? Absolutely you did. This was the first time when we were refugees. I mean, it's interesting that if you study the pattern of refugees, New uh, Chicago, New York, Detroit, became literally places that were built by ex-slaves from the South. Yeah. And so it's yeah. those places that we really never resolved, even to this day. Hey, James, this is a, such a great conversation, and uh, we want to draw close to this segment of it, but we want to uh, continue the conversation uh, with, a, with another whole, whole segment on this topic because it's so, so valuable. Um, so let me just uh, wrap this up. Uh, just briefly here and say thank you so much for joining us on this uh, on this section here with James White. Uh, thank you for joining us on the Winsome Conviction podcast. Uh, we'd encourage you to just subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anywhere else where you'd like to get your uh, podcasts. And also check out the winsomeconviction.com website we have with a bunch of resources and other things you can check out there. So we're really grateful for joining us. And by all means, join us for part two of this conversation with James White on our next podcast. <laughs>